0: He only got a slap on the wrist. But I think the world knew at that point what was going on.
2: Illegally was the only word that could describe what occurred in the penalty phase of the Palm Beach sentence against Jeffrey Epstein. I would only categorize it as illegal.
3: Yeah, well, there was corruption at every level.
4: Welcome to episode nine of Epstein Devil in the Darkness. I'm your host, Danielle Robay. Last time, we heard how Palm Beach Police launched an investigation into Jeffrey Epstein's web of teen sex abuse thanks to one courageous 14-year-old girl. Despite what seemed like a mountain of testimony against him, Epstein was allowed to negotiate a plea deal that saw him convicted of a single count of solicitation of prostitution with a minor under the age of 18. It became known as the, quote, sweetheart deal. But it was something much darker.
1: Well, his attorneys worked out a deal where he only had a 13-month jail term. And six days a week, he was able to leave to go to his office.
5: A year and a half in prison, in jail. We had nothing to do with the terms of the imprisonment.
4: How and why was he allowed to escape justice with that secret deal? And who might have been pulling the strings behind the scenes?
2: In Florida... In 2007, 2008, the prosecutor, U.S. attorney was Alex Acosta, who later became secretary of labor, for President Trump. That 59 page federal indictment was ripped up and he was allowed to plead guilty to some nonsensical crimes in the state court where there was no penalty.
3: This is a system that was supposed to work for the victims, and it did just the opposite. It worked against the victims and for the accused.
4: Plus, learn the disturbing truth about Epstein's quote, unquote, work release.
3: This is a guy that was getting out essentially on work release for eight, nine hours a day and would only have to go back to the jail to sleep during the week. So that doesn't happen without some kind of corruption or inside dealings.
4: When investigators from the Palm Beach Police Department began interviewing Epstein's victims, they were shocked at the scale and scope of his abuse of teenage girls. In the words of police chief Michael Ryder, it was a case of he said, she said, except, quote, this was 50-something she's and one he, and the she's all basically told the same story. For attorney Spencer Coven, who represented many of those girls, it seemed an open and shut case until Jeffrey Epstein got his Big Bucks attorneys involved.
3: During this investigation by Palm Beach Police Department, they took all of these statements and got all of this information and eventually turned it over to the Palm Beach State Attorney's Office. The Palm Beach State Attorney's Office got the information and somehow Mr. Epstein's lawyers caught wind that this investigation was being turned over to the state attorney's. When that happened, Mr. Epstein then reached out, got all of his high-powered lawyers to dig up as much dirt as they could on all of the young women who were accusing Mr. Epstein of molestation and sexual harassment. When that occurred, they turned over Facebook pages, back then, MySpace pages, and any other information they could find on these young girls that they thought could smear their reputations in the eyes of the state attorney's office. The state attorney's office, apparently at that point, appeared to be scared and decided with the severe high-profile attorneys that Mr. Epstein had hired that they were going to essentially either let him walk or give him an extremely light type of plea deal.
4: One of those high-profile attorneys was Alan Dershowitz, who had previously represented O.J. Simpson. Dershowitz now describes their relationship as largely academic.
5: He called me and he told me that he was being investigated and that he would like me to become his lawyer and put together a legal team for him. I was initially reluctant because I've never represented somebody previously that I knew. Usually people just call me out of the blue, but he was very insistent. And he asked me if I would do it, and I agreed to. I met with the state attorney twice as his lawyer, presented our side of the case, and ultimately got an agreement. But Epstein wasn't satisfied with my agreement because it required him to plead guilty to a felony. After I got him the deal that would have required him to plead guilty to a felony, he said he could do better. And he sidelined me. He said, "I I don't want you to do any further negotiations for me. And he brought in another lawyer who got him a better deal. In fact, he got him no felony, no jail time, no registration. And that's what put the federal government into the case.
4: Frustrated and not a little outraged by the maneuverings of Epstein's legal powerhouse, the Palm Beach PD persuaded the FBI to conduct an investigation of their own. Epstein then upped the ante on his side throwing everything he had at the prosecutors to avoid a lengthy spell in jail.
5: Once the federal government got into the case, he asked me if I would come back and mm-hmm. help put together a federal team and I did. And I put together a team including Roy Black, who was a great lawyer, and Jay Lefkowitz, and uh, Jerry Lefcourt, and then he, Epstein, personally brought on Ken Starr. So we had a very good team and he eventually persuaded them they didn't have a federal case because the women, the young women were all local and were paid with cash. And to get a federal case, you need to have the use of interstate facilities. That was absent. They just didn't have the evidence. So we persuaded the government that they had a weak federal case and a strong state case. So everybody would be better if he pleaded only to state charges, which is what he did. We had a very good argument on our side and they had a very good argument on their side. Their strong argument was that he had committed a series of state crimes. Our strong argument was that he hadn't committed any federal crimes. And so we had arm's length negotiations with very tough lawyers on the other side who really wanted to get whatever they could. And we were trying to do as best we could for our client because his lawyers told him that the risk, if he ever went to trial federally, although we all thought he would win, it was a 20% chance maybe he could lose. If he lost, he'd spend the rest of his life in prison. You just do a cost-benefit analysis, 13, 14, 15 months, in Palm Beach jail versus the uncertainty of a possible federal conviction. So we uh, all recommended that he take the deal.
4: The FBI's 11-month, 53-page indictment was never presented to a grand jury. And Jeffrey Epstein's lawyers instead secured what we now know as the Sweetheart Deal of 18 months in a Palm Beach jail, of which he would serve just 13. Spencer Coven smelled a rat.
3: So the federal government during their investigation were well aware that there were civil attorneys out there representing these young ladies. Despite this, They began having secret discussions with Mr. Epstein through his lawyers and the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of Florida decided that they were going to enter into essentially what became a secret plea deal, which would allow Mr. Epstein to serve only one year behind bars locally here in Palm Beach County instead of federally at a federal penitentiary and that he would be branded a sexual predator, but Essentially, that would mean nothing for him, because with the money and influence that he had, he could live anywhere. And as a result, they were going to enter into this deal, and he would essentially, after that, get off scot-free.
4: Dershowitz says he did his job as an attorney to get his client the best deal possible. But Epstein still wasn't pleased.
5: Once we got the federal deal, which everybody called the sweetheart deal, he complained bitterly about that deal. He said it wasn't good enough. He wanted no jail time, no felony, no registration. I think he didn't think he did anything wrong.
4: As we heard in the last episode, the sheer weight of evidence against Epstein meant that for many, victims included, the plea deal seemed inexplicably lenient. So how could the system have gone so wrong?
3: I think the most difficult part really has been the amount of money that Mr. Epstein was willing to throw at the defense of his own case. And by doing that, trying to just outspend, outmaneuver, investigate, and outbully the advocates on behalf of the girls. You know, when you're a plaintiff attorney and you're representing clients, you're doing your best to represent your client, but when a guy like Mr. Epstein starts throwing hundreds of thousands of dollars at lawyers, then admittedly you're having to try to bat back all of those filings and motions and all the kinds of things that come with all of these high-priced lawyers and law firms that are throwing things at you. I can tell you that in representing the victims of Mr. Epstein and going through some of the litigation and seeing some of the hard-nosed tactics he had against my clients, having them followed by his private investigators having Black Tahoes drive up to their house and quickly drive away or sit outside their home, having his investigators interview people and their families looking online at all of their backgrounds and information. As a lawyer on behalf of those clients, there were days where I definitely walked out to my car and luckily I had a remote start on my vehicle and, and I would remote start my car. Call it a hunch, call it a fear, call it just good practice. It it was definitely something that concerned me.
4: Some believe that there were even darker forces at work. The U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Florida at that time was Alexander Acosta, who would later go on to serve in President Trump's cabinet as U.S. Secretary of Labor. It was Acosta who agreed to the plea deal. And some other extraordinary details, including immunity for any unnamed, potential co-conspirators. Here's attorney Alan Dershowitz.
5: That was drafted by Jay Lefkowitz at the request of Jeffrey Epstein. And what he had in mind was Sarah Kalin, the woman who was his secretary, Leslie Groff, I think her name was, maybe Ghislaine Maxwell, and any of the young women who he had paid to find other young women. You're not a co-conspirator. If you just uh, had sex with somebody, you're a co-conspirator, if you help them arrange and organize sexual trafficking.
4: Things would get even murkier. Here's reporter Andy Tillett.
6: So Acosta later said he offered this incredibly lenient deal because he was told, and I quote, that Epstein belonged to intelligence, was above his pay grade, and to leave it alone. What does that mean? Who told him?
4: Epstein's former co-worker, Stephen Hoffenberg, finds it fishy, too.
2: I would direct you to what Alex Acosta, the U.S. attorney, lead prosecutor, said that Jeffrey Epstein was involved in intel. And I believe the U.S. attorney, Alex Acosta, said he was way above my pay grade. And I thought that I was doing what I should do as the main prosecutor against Jeffrey Epstein. There's got to be a very serious reason for what occurred in Florida, because it makes a very important investigation, because it doesn't make sense.
4: Was Acosta pressured by Epstein's powerful friends, perhaps afraid of what dirt might come out on them if he was to face federal charges?
7: Ultimately, Alexander Acosta, who was in charge of the Southern District of Florida, decided to hold off on those charges and enter into a secret plea deal with Mr. Epstein. Now, I say it was secret because at the time, we as advocates on behalf of the victims had no idea that they were doing this. They never advised the attorneys on behalf of the victims. They never contacted the victims. They never told any of the victims that there were even negotiations going on at the time. So the victims themselves had no idea... What was happening? Nonetheless, Alex Costa and his office started these negotiations in secret with Mr. Epstein's lawyers. We found out many years later that these secret deals happened in back rooms at restaurants, through pleasant emails going back and forth with jokes between the lawyers, meanwhile forgetting the fact that there are 40 young minor victims that were abused by this billionaire.
4: Or was something even more sinister at work?
3: Mr. Epstein was using his immense wealth to curry as much favor as he could to get the best deal possible. And in doing so, his legal team then tried to curry favor with the one man that was able to make the final decision, which was Alex Acosta at the time. And for some reason that was unbeknownst to us as advocates for the victims at the time, Mr. Acosta was either entranced by The high-priced legal team that Mr. Epstein had amassed or afraid of his own reputation in a salacious prosecution case or was just too busy or somehow got some benefit that we just don't know to this day. But for some reason, Mr. Acosta, on behalf of the U.S. Attorney's Office at the time, negotiated this sweetheart deal with Mr. Epstein.
4: There was one further shocking detail to Epstein's sweetheart deal. A detail that has since been found to have been unlawful. Andy Tillett explains.
6: So according to laws protecting victims' rights, all of Epstein's victims should have been kept informed of any deal or agreement that was reached between Epstein and prosecutors. They should have been given the opportunity to give victim impact statements in court. They weren't. In fact, they only find out about his plea bargain after the deal had been done. Is actually outrageous. You have to ask, just whose interests was Alex Acosta looking out for here?
4: Here's famed New York attorney Gloria Allred, who is now representing more of Epstein's victims.
1: Well, under the Crime Victims Act, the victims do have a right to be heard at each and every stage of the prosecution. Of course, in the earlier case in Florida, they were denied that right to be notified about the plea and to be heard about it. And that was a violation according to a federal judge who decided that issue not long ago. It's one thing to pass the Law Crime Victims Act and say, we respect victims we want them to be heard. It's another to enforce that.
3: Disgusted. I mean, truly disgusted at how the U.S. Attorney's Office handled itself and what they did. And I think that the federal judge in the Southern District really kind of summed it up best when he stated that the U.S. Attorney's Office broke the law by failing to inform the victims of what was going down and what was going to happen. It was the U.S. Attorney's job under federal law to keep the victims informed about what was going to happen and to make them a part of those discussions, and he failed to do that.
4: It didn't end there. If the circumstances of Jeffrey Epstein's conviction were shocking, to say the least, then his time in prison is nothing short of unbelievable.
6: Okay, so some of these details kind of take your breath away. Most convicted sex offenders in Florida can expect to do their time in state prison. Epstein, for reasons which are still unclear, was housed in a private wing of the Palm Beach County Stockade. And honestly... Very little about his time there sounds like a prison at all. His cell door was left unlocked and he had access to his own attorney room. Perhaps most astonishingly, after just three months, he was allowed out on what they called work release for 12 hours a day, six days a week. That work was at his own private office, which was staffed by people whose overtime he paid and he had his own driver to take him between the office and the jail.
4: Attorney Spencer Kuvin is still angry and suspicious about what seemed like preferential treatment for the convicted sex offender.
3: Well, I certainly think that at all levels, whether it be at the jail, the state level, or again at the federal level, that there was some type of untoward activity going on and some type of corruption had to be occurring. We know, for example, just to give you an example, that Mr. Epstein was given highly preferential treatment at the jail here after his sentencing. That people wanted to be around him, people that worked at the jail were asking him for jobs after he got out. He didn't even have to stay behind bars. He could get out during the day and go home or go to an office, which was right downtown in Palm Beach, one or two doors down from his lawyer's office in a high-priced, cushy office building in Palm Beach, where he would get lunches catered into him, and young women brought into his office while he's on work release for being a sexual predator
4: it's a view that attorney gloria allred shares
1: i think the public has a right to be suspicious about whether mr epstein was enjoying special rights you know we always say that justice is blind but there is a sense in the public that everyone does not enjoy equal protection under the law or equal rights that the rich and the powerful famous do get special treatment, that there may be corruption in the system, that maybe the rich, powerful, famous can pay off individuals within the system to obtain that special treatment, or even if they don't, that because of their status, that maybe they will enjoy special privileges that no one else will be able to enjoy. So that is a major problem which undermines the confidence of the public in the system.
4: In July 2009, Epstein was released on parole, five months early. On probation for a year, he was supposedly confined to his Palm Beach home for a further year, allowed only to travel between there and his office.
6: So he's supposedly under house arrest at this time except flight logs show he took numerous trips from Florida to his home in Manhattan and his private island, Little St. James. And yet, there were no repercussions for any of this. Nobody tells him to stop. Nobody says, you're not allowed to do this.
4: By 2010, Jeffrey Epstein was a free man, and had picked up his perversions where he left off. As we have heard in previous episodes, he was not only abusing girls in his New York and New Mexico residences, but also continuing to entertain celebs and VIPs, including Prince Andrew. And he was doing it, it seemed, with impunity. Former airport director for Santa Fe Airport, Cameron Humphreys, remembers hearing in 2015 that Epstein's private jet was transporting girls across state lines to his New Mexico ranch. Humphreys raised concerns at the time, concerns that were largely ignored.
7: It's also the power of the wealthy, right? You know, I think about if there had been somebody that was accused of dealing drugs on a large scale, how would we have responded to that? How would we have tried to go after uh, the individuals involved with that? you know? What would we have done to to put a stop to it? You know, I think about all the different types of crimes that people carry out and the way that we go after those people. It just doesn't feel like in this case that we went after him. I have no inside knowledge. I have no understanding of the federal investigation that was ongoing or any local investigations that were ongoing. But the fact that he carried on those activities for those those years and it took that long for him to be brought up on charges unbelievable
4: It's a view shared by Epstein's former chauffeur, speaking here under condition of anonymity for fear of his own life.
2: As a regular American, I can't believe that somebody was able to get that kind of a deal because of his power, influence, and money. Because if it was me, I would have been in jail for the rest of my life. And that's the problem. That the, the justice system doesn't look out for the little guy. If you got money and power, you can do anything you want and you get away with it. But if you're a normal person, hardworking American citizen in this country, you get caught doing anything, they throw you in jail and they don't want to know anything. It's, it's just it's, it's a shame that he could get away with that and that they could let anybody could let him get away with that and not you know punish him like any other person.
4: Even a decade later, and with Epstein dead and disgraced, the shockwaves of the 2008 sweetheart deal and the seemingly preferential treatment that Epstein's money or power appeared to buy him continue to affect lives. Here's attorney Lisa Bloom.
0: So I currently represent six women who say that they were victims of Jeffrey Epstein, and we are talking to at least a half a dozen more people are reaching out to us every day about Jeffrey Epstein. So what I hear from my clients is that in 2008, when Jeffrey Epstein got that ridiculous plea deal, they felt like nobody's going to believe them. No one's going to protect them. They couldn't possibly come forward.
3: I can tell you that my clients were a little more, what's the word I'm looking for? I, I guess accepting of how everything was playing out than, frankly, the attorneys who were representing them were because we were amazed and disgusted at how the system was working against the victims and for this rich and wealthy defendant. While my clients and other victims, these young girls, were looking at it going, well, of course, he's rich and he's famous and wealthy and and of course he's getting all the benefit of the doubt here. We know that's the way that the system sadly works. And, you know, for those of us who don't, want a system that works that way and are fighting against a system that works that way, we were appalled. But the young girls were just kind of sadly, you know, they looked at it and said, of course, that's the way it all works out. Unfortunately, the way our justice system is set up, you cannot sue a state attorney or U.S. attorney. They have immunity for that type of action that they take as part of their job. Having said that, uh, my clients were definitely pleased at the fact that ultimately Mr. Acosta was forced to resign his position within the president's cabinet. This is not a man that that any of my clients ever felt, or nor I felt, should be holding such a position of high esteem after what he had done to these poor victims. We always, on behalf of the victims, wanted there to be congressional hearings regarding the actions that Mr. Acosta took. I think with him stepping down from his position in the cabinet, he probably dodged a bullet with that one. If he had refused to resign and he continued to remain on the cabinet, I think there probably would have been more of a call for congressional hearings.
0: To the men in power who were associated with him, shame on you. Shame on you and this tremendous disrespect for women. We've known who he is for so many years. I thought the 2008 plea bargain was a slap in the face to victims too because one of the counts was soliciting a prostitute mm-hmm. or something. And, and my clients say, you know, we're not, we're not prostitutes. So that's offensive. And, mm-hmm. and with all due respect to sex workers.
4: Next time on Epstein, Devil in the Darkness, justice will be done.
1: He might have thought that it was safer for him to be in prison than be walking around Paris.
5: I thought it was a weak indictment. They wanted to have enough just to arrest him and search his house. I think the goal of this indictment was to hold him and
3: have other women come forward. Mr. Epstein's victims outnumber Weinstein and Cosby combined. I think that the span of time that Mr. Epstein was abusing young women and the volume and breadth of the investigation, that there could have been hundreds of women, girls, young girls.
4: Epstein, Devil in the Darkness is hosted by me, Danielle Robay executive produced by Dylan Howard and Melissa Cronin and is a production of Broad and Water Studios and Endeavor Audio executive producers also include Tom Freestone, James Robertson and Andy Tillett this series is written by Dominic Utton reporting by Aaron Tinney, Doug Montero Jen Hager and Marjorie Hernandez the series is mixed and engineered by Sean Cravett and Sam Ada There is so much more to this story, and you don't want to miss anything, I can assure you. Make sure you subscribe to Epstein, Devil in the Darkness, wherever you get podcasts.